morning, everybody. Um, as always, uh, Alicia and I are thankful to be out here worshiping with this group. Uh, it's always nice to see um, some faces that we don't get to see very often, and uh, I'm very thankful for an opportunity to talk about um, a really challenging topic, I think, uh, one of temptation, and I think we're going to see a, a very challenging message from God's Word this morning. Um, so, as Rob just read for us, we're going to look at a lesson based on uh, Luke chapter 4, and in this account, we're going to see that Jesus' life reveals to us some very simple and strategic ways that we can overcome, tem uh, overcome temptation in our lives. And this is why I've entitled the lesson today, Overcoming Temptation, Jesus' Way. Um, so in order to start, we've got to look at this. So many of us are probably familiar with these two faces here. If you've watched some NHL hockey in your life, you'll know that this is Ron McLean and, and Don Cherry. And these are the co-hosts of a popular TV segment called Coach's Corner. And as you probably know, it runs during the first intermission of Hockey Night in Canada. And so during the segment, the duo, and usually overpowered by Don Cherry, they analyze different um, decisions or plays made during the game of hockey. And then they talk about where, where things went right or where they went wrong. And in a similar way this morning, I'd like to do something like that. Uh, I'd like to analyze the tactics that Jesus used to overcome temptation in this account of him being tempted in the wilderness. So we're going to use the account of Jesus in the wilderness from Luke 4 to investigate the answer to one simple question this morning. How can we get better at fighting temptation uh, in our lives? We're going to look at the offensive plays that Satan used to attack Jesus and then the, de uh, and then the defensive strategies that Jesus used to overcome those temptations. So as we just read, Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, and he didn't eat anything for 40 days. And Satan was also there with him in the wilderness, trying to get him to sin against his father. We read about the three different temptations used by Satan, and then also the three strategies that Jesus used to overcome those temptations. And so to use the Coach's Corner theme, uh, these are the three offensive and defensive plays we're going to analyze this morning. So let's begin. If we're going to know, um, sorry, if we are going to become better at overcoming temptation, we need to understand what or who we're up against. And I hope this acronym will help us uh, remember that the, uh, the, I hope this acronym will help us remember the tactics that Satan used on Jesus so that we can also become better at identifying and overcoming those temptations in our lives. So uh, I'm saying here that Satan wanted Jesus' faith to rot. And he accomplished, uh, he tried to accomplish this by tempting Jesus to make three different choices. The first one was that he wanted him to choose earthly riches over his reward in heaven. Secondly, he wanted him to choose st uh, stubborn obstinance over obedience to his father's plan. And third, he wanted him to choose trepidation and fear uh, over trusting in God. So we're going to analyze those three choices this morning. First, and then we're going to look at the three things that Jesus did after that to overcome those temptations. So let's start with the first one. In Luke uh, 4, verses 5 to 7, we read this. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. So the first thing that we see here uh, in this dialogue is that Satan is a liar. 
I mean, in a sense, yes, our enemy is indeed of this world, and he's very much at work in it, but the truth is that he doesn't have control over who gets what. That's up to God. Uh, but Jesus sees right through these lies, and more importantly, he points out uh, the real truth that we need to understand is that our lives are, are more, or they're about more than the riches of this world. So Jesus saw through the lies, but how about us? What kind of lies are we being tempted to believe today? What riches are you being tempted to chase after at the expense of your true reward in heaven? How many times do we say things like this in our hearts? If only I could just get one more raise, or a little bit bigger house, or a little bit nicer car, or a bigger retirement fund, then I would be content. But the problem is that if, uh, if our contentment lies in anything that this world has to offer, we truly will never be content, will we? We need to focus on our real reward in heaven instead, like Jesus did. And I think that's why he says this in Luke 9, 24 to 25. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? So are we, are we trying to save our life? Do we value our comfortable homes, our secure jobs, and our bank accounts more than we value what God is calling us to do for him? Jesus says that whoever is willing to lose their life for him will save it. And thinking about this reminds me of an old poem called A Hundred Years From Now by Walden Parker. Maybe you've heard it before. It goes like this. It will not make much difference, friend, a hundred years from now, if you lived in a stately mansion or on a river scow. If the clothes you wear are tailor-made or pieced together somehow, if you eat big steaks or beans and cake a hundred years from now, it won't matter the bank account or the make of car you drive, for the grave will claim all the riches and the, and the fame and the things for which you strive. There's a deadline that we all must meet, and no one will be late. It won't matter then all the places you've been, each one will keep that date. We will only have in eternity what we gave away on earth. When we go to the grave, we will only save the things of eternal worth. What matters, friend, the earthly gain for which some men always bow? For, the de for your destiny will be sealed, you see, a hundred years from now. So we see from this poem and the words of Jesus in the scripture we just read that focusing on the things of this world and trying to save our life won't matter one bit when we cross into eternity. Jesus knew that, and so he chose his reward in heaven over the things of this earth. Um, and his example shows us that we need to do the same thing. So let's move on to the next of Satan's tactics. So next we'll look at the choice that Jesus had to make uh, between doing his will and his Father's will. And I'm calling this a temptation of obstinance because obstinance is defined as a stubborn refusal to change one's mind. The devil tempted Jesus to refuse to follow God's plan and take an easier path instead. And we read this in Luke 4, verses 9 to 11, where it says, the devil, led him to, uh, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you uh, will not strike your foot against a stone. I think this is the most interesting temptation that uh, Satan presents to Jesus. I mean, why did Satan think that Jesus would be tempted to jump anyways? Um, and why use a verse from Psalm 91 to get him to do it? What was his goal in all of this? Some of the commentators that I was reading 
preparing for this, thought that Jesus may have seen this as a shortcut uh, to establishing his credibility among the Jews. So if he did jump, and if God saved him, then Jesus could have pointed to Psalm 91 and said, you know, it's written here that, that this would happen. See, I am the Savior. And this would have been tempting for Jesus to do this because taking an easy route like this might have allowed him to avoid much of the persecution that was coming his way. And I mean, how could this be a bad idea, right? If it allows people to recognize the Messiah, wouldn't that be the right thing to do? Well, except for one major detail, this wasn't the plan that God had for his son. So is there a lesson for us in this? Well, let me suggest that we ask ourselves this question. With your life, can you say that, I, am I trying to fit God's plan into my life? Or am I trying to change my life to fit God's plan? Let me say that again. Am I trying to fit God's plan into my life? Or am I trying to change my life to fit into God's plan? The difference between them, these two things is subtle, but I think it's profound, and it, our service to God will really change depending on how we answer this question. So do we have an obstinate view about how we will serve God? Do we think things like, well, I have some free time here, uh, so I'll do some service for God. Or, well, I'll do these things for God because I like them and they're pretty easy for me, but I won't do those things because they're hard and I don't like that. Do we pick what we're going to do for God so that it works in our life? Or do we realize that our lives are not actually our own, but a gift from God? Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And so as we said earlier, obstinance is defined as a stubborn refusal to change one's mind. And like Jesus, we often have the choice between an easy path and a right path. Instead of being obstinate, we need to choose to obey God's plan for our lives, just like Jesus did. So that brings us to the last play from Satan's temptation playbook that we're going to look at today, which is when he tries to get Jesus' faith to rot by getting him to choose trepidation and fear instead of trusting in his Father. We see this in Luke 4.3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And the amazing thing we can learn from Jesus here is that he voluntarily submitted to being fully human. And we know that he had the ability to make enough food for feeding like 5,000 people, right? He could have done that. But here he chooses not to because he wants to rely on his God instead. And I think we can all relate to being tempted in a similar way. And do we ever get thoughts like this running through our head? God isn't going to look after you in this, in this problem. Just take matters into your own hands and do what you need to do for yourself. Or maybe God will let you down. You can't trust him. Or what about, uh, what if God doesn't provide? What will happen to my life? What will happen to my family? Do you think Jesus might have had similar thoughts running through his head when he was starving for 40 days in the desert? Do you think he would have been tempted to just take matters into his own hands and make some bread for himself? According to Merriam-Webster, trepidation is a nervous or fearful feeling. Uh, we give in to trepidation when we try to re uh, rely on our own strengths and our own abilities instead of on God. When we make this choice, and we often do, 
we will be nervous and fearful about everything because we will always be worried about how we are going to get ourselves through every situation. Sound familiar? Um, wouldn't it be better, though, if we just choose to trust in God instead of, instead of trusting in our own trepidation? Wouldn't it be better to rely on the all-powerful God of the universe, the one who can do anything instead of just ourselves? When faced with the temptation to fear for his life and make some bread, Jesus, to, uh, Jesus chose to trust God instead. And then he says these powerful words recorded in Matthew's account, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Church, we would all benefit greatly from uh, following this example. So, in summary, we see that Satan wanted Jesus' faith to rot. He wanted him to choose earthly reward. Uh, earthly riches over his reward in heaven. He wanted him to choose stubborn obstinance over obedience to his father's plan. And he wanted him to choose trepidation and fear instead of trusting in God. So this should come as no surprise, but we need to be aware that Satan wants our faith to rot as well. Our goal this morning is to learn from Jesus so that we can be victorious over temptation, just like our Savior. Which leads us to what I'm calling Jesus' mop strategy. As promised, we're going to look at the three things that Jesus did to overcome temptation. And this certainly isn't an exhaustive list of everything that Jesus did um, to overcome temptation. But I, I thought that these three things stood out because it's something that we can also do in our lives today. So in order to make this more memorable, and even at the risk of sounding corny, I've chosen another acronym. To stop the rot, we need to clean things up with Jesus' mop strategy. Okay, so here are the things that we're going to talk about that Jesus did. First, he maintained his focus. The second is that he occupied his mind with the word of God. And third, he pressed on through challenges and hard times. We're going to look at each of these strategies to help us be better equipped to fight temptation in our lives. So we'll start with maintaining focus. It's easy to lose focus, right? It often feels like we're being pulled in so many different directions, we never seem to have enough time to do all the things we want to do. And so to set up this discussion, I thought we'd look through, uh, we'd do a little bit of trivia together. So this, uh, we've got four studies to look at. <clears throat> this one here, according to the Global, Web uh, the Global Web Index, the average digital consumer today is spending this much time on some form of social media every day. So I'll give you two seconds to make a guess in your head. Um, I don't know if you'll be able to read it, but the average is 2 hours and 23 minutes a day. And that's globally. When I looked it up for Canadians, it was a little bit less. It was an hour and 49 minutes. But um, still, let that sink in. I mean, that is, that's 2 hours every day. Let's round it to 2 hours uh, that, that digital consumers are spending on their devices at, on social media. And this next one I actually find hard to believe, but... I checked a few different places and I got kind of the same answer, so I'm going with it. According to another study done by the Nielsen Company, the average adult in the U.S. spent this much time per day watching a combination of live and time-shifted TV. Okay, make your guess. The average uh, is, if you can see it there, 4 hours and 46 minutes per day, which is actually mind-boggling. Um, and this, is, this study was done in the U.S., but I don't think we'd be too different here in Canada. So I also like charts, so I made this one. Um, it, looking at the pie chart, we can see that if we're spending eight hours at work, eight hours sleeping, one hour driving, an hour and a half eating, and two hours on social media, and then five hours watching TV, 
Uh, we've also we've already used up 25 hours of our 24-hour day. Um, so I mean, take these numbers with a grain of salt, of course, but don't miss the point of what I'm trying to say here. If this is what your life looks like, what does it say about your priorities? And what does it say about the power of distraction? In another study done by Lifeway Research, they asked 2,930 Protestant churchgoers how often they read the Bible. And the answer was, and I'll give you a minute to think about it, um, the answer was that only 19% of them read the Bible every day. And the last one I wanted to look at, uh, in, in another study done by the Evangelical Alliance, they asked 1,500 believers how many of them spent a substantial amount of time in prayer every day. And the survey said only 31% set aside uh, a substantial amount of time to talk to God every day. So going back to the pie chart, I mean, where does God fit into this for us? I mean, after all, as we read in this account, Jesus reminds us to worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. But do we? And do the hours of our day reflect that? Now, I know that reading the Bible and praying doesn't automatically make us an awesome Christian, but if Jesus relied on Scripture and prayer, then how on earth do we think we're going to be fine without it? Do we, really, do we really want to grow in our faith? And if we do, I think we have to admit that we're going to have to cut out some distractions and maintain our focus on what's important and then just go after that. Think about it this way. At the end of your life, are, are we going to wish that we spent more hours sitting in front of a screen watching, uh, watching TV or looking at social media? Not a chance. We were built for so much more than that. So is there, is there inherently something wrong about social media or TV? I mean, why am I singling those out? Or eating or any of these other things? Maybe not. Maybe, the, maybe not on their own. But if we let any of these types of distractions rule over our lives, Satan will use them to render us useless for God. This is why Solomon gave us this strong warning in Proverbs 4, um, 23 to 26, where it said, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Fix your... Uh, Keep your mouth free from perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths of your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. This section just screams at us to stay focused, doesn't it? We are told to guard our hearts and then to give careful thought to the paths of our feet. There are so many ideas out there about what's important in life, and I'm convinced that if we chase after them, many of these things will just steal our attention. I'm also convinced that, that one of the devil's most powerful tactics isn't necessarily to get people to, do, to go and commit some awful, atrocious sin, but instead just to keep us distracted with good things in our lives, like work and hobbies, family, uh, houses, social media, TV, and the list goes on and on. And yes, even, ch even some church activities. Until we just get so busy and so distracted that we forget all about God. Jesus was a master at seeing through Satan's lies and maintaining his focus on what was important. And I think that we can learn a lot from him. And so let's move on to the next strategy in Jesus' playbook. We've gone over removing distractions so that we can maintain focus on God, but we can't stop at just shifting our focus away from distractions. We also need to have a plan for what we're going to fill our lives with instead 
so that we don't just fall back into our own ways, or into our old ways. So we need to follow Jesus' example by occupying our minds with God's word. And I know, I know, we've all heard this before. It's important to read the Bible, but please don't tune out to what you're about to hear. Because according to the stats we just looked at, we all need to hear this. So consider this. In all three attacks from Satan, Jesus used scripture to fight him off. What does that say about the power of knowing God's word? We're going to look at the words of Jesus from Matthew 12 to hopefully drive this home. In verses 43 to 45, it says this, When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. This is how it will be with this wicked generation. You might be wondering what on earth this scripture has to do with knowing the word of God. Well, I'm glad you asked. This section says that when someone drives out an impure spirit out of a person, if that person doesn't get immediately filled up with the spirit of God instead, the impure spirit who just left will come back. Except this time, he'll bring his buddies with him. And that's why Jesus said the person will be worse off in the end than they were at the start. So maybe we're not talking about demons this morning, but the concept is still the same when it comes to what we allow ourselves to be filled with. We can clean out all the distractions and all the sin from our lives, but if we don't get filled up with spiritual things to take their place, we'll just fall back into our own ways, and we'll even be worse off than we were at the start. So to try and illustrate this better, uh, I'm going to share something I saw from Francis Chan that I thought was very helpful. So I've got a couple things here. First of all, I've got, I got this, Reese's Pieces. Um, this is like one of my favorite chocolate bars besides dark chocolate. Uh, but this time of year, you see these things all over the place. And they usually come in the mini size. And they can be very tempting, right? But the worst time, though, is when you're very hungry, right? You come home from a long day, and you're starving, and then there's like a big bowl of the mini versions of these sitting on your counter. So what do you do? Well, you know what you do. But what if instead you're not hungry? What if you just had a big healthy meal of vegetables? Uh, so what if you had some stuff like carrots instead? And what else we got in here? Celery. And uh, some spinach. Mm. And you just eat so much of that good stuff that you're just so full of good food. Mm. One second. <laughs> you just get so filled up with good food that this thing doesn't even look very good anymore because you're stuffed. Um, it's still tempting, right? You still look at this, and you, you may still want to eat it, but because you're so full of good food, it doesn't look that tempting anymore. And it's the same thing with our spiritual life. We can clean up all the sin, all the junk food, and all the selfishness, social media, TV, everything we want, but if we don't fill ourselves with something else, something better, then we're going to get hungry. And when we get hungry, Satan will be right there to tempt us with something that looks so delicious, and we're going to take it. 
Let's go back to the start of the account again. In, in Luke 4, verse 1, it says that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. It says that Jesus was all filled up with the Holy Spirit. We, all, we also already talked about him being filled with the Word of God. And because he was so filled up with these things, the devil couldn't get through to him. I think we understand this, but the troubling thing is this, that many of us are not filled with the Holy Spirit. Many of us don't fill ourselves with the Word of God. We're not involved in the type of service that God's called us to. We're not spending time with the church. We're not involved with regular prayer time, etc., because the list goes on and on. Instead of filling our spiritual houses with good spiritual food, we either keep it empty, or worse yet, we fill it up with junk food that has no value. And then when we eat the junk food, we wonder why we're spiritually sick and dying. The message is simple. Get the junk food out of your life and fill yourself with the nourishing things of God or you won't survive. So when we follow Jesus' example and are filled up with the word, we are more likely to have our minds set on spiritual things and spiritual concepts and we won't be so tempted to sin. And this is why Paul said this to the Roman church in Romans, 5, sorry, in Romans 8 verses 5 to 6. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. And so this passage begs the question, what is governing my mind? Is it my sinful desires, or is it something greater? Verse 6 says that the flesh leads to death, but the Spirit leads to life and peace. So let's move on. The last part of Jesus' mob strategy was to press on through challenging and hard times. We'll round out the discussion today by looking at a passage from 2 Peter, verses, uh, from 2 Peter 1, verses 3 to 7, where it says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. So it's easy, uh, so, sorry, it's like someone gave us a brand new free house. And even better than that, they also gave us all the tools and all the money and all the instructions we need to take care of that house. And then one day, one day after a little while, we find out that there's a, a hole in the roof. What are we going to do? Are we going to ignore it and then let the house be destroyed just because we don't want to do the work? Of course not. And along those same lines, when it comes to the weaknesses in our faith, I think most of the time we are able to see the problems, but then we think things like, well, coming out on Sunday to be part of the community is great, but when things get tough, I'm just going to do whatever I feel like doing. I'm not really into the radical Christianity thing. Or, I know the Bible is important, but I really just can't get into reading it. Maybe other people like it, but it's just not for me. Just like all the knowledge and tools that came along with our free house, <clears throat> 2 Peter 1.3 tells us that God's divine power has given us everything that we need for a godly life. 
in verse 5, it also tells us that we need to make every effort to grow in our faith. We should focus on using our gifts and the things that we're good at to serve God, but that's not an excuse to not work on the areas that we struggle with. 1 Peter 1 says to make every effort to grow in all the areas of our faith. If there's a problem with our spiritual house, we need to do our best to fix the hole in the roof, even if we're not that good at patching roofs. And I'm, I'm sure um, we can always call on another brother or sister for help with that. Jesus was tempted in so many different ways, and I'm sure some of them were harder for him than others to get through, but he didn't give up. Instead, he made every effort. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. With God's help, we can make it through any temptation, just like Jesus did. We can do this because his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Our salvation is a free gift from God, but we still have a responsibility to put in an effort. Trust me, our efforts will be worth it. So we've gone over a lot of things this morning. When you make a commitment to turn your back on evil and follow God, you can be sure that Satan is going to be right there, and he won't leave you alone. He wanted Jesus' faith to rot, and he wants our faith to rot as well. And I hope we've seen that the, te- that the temptations in our lives can even come from the things that we might consider to be good things. And I mean, think about it. Satan didn't, in this account, Satan didn't tempt Jesus with an obvious book, chapter, and verse commandment in most, in, most, uh, in most of the times. Instead, he was much more subtle, trying to get him to shift his trust and his focus away from God towards other things. Very soon, in a, in a similar way, each of us will be tempted as well. But um, thanks to this account from Luke, we have an advantage because we know the enemy's playbook. So when, we're, when, so when that temptation comes, we need to ask ourselves, are we being tempted to choose earthly riches over our reward in heaven? Are we being tempted to choose stubborn obstinance over, our obedience, over obedience to God's commands? And am I being tempted to choose trepidation and fear over trusting in God? And I have to say, since preparing this sermon, I've found that many of the temptations in my life fit into one of these three categories. Maybe you'll find that as well. So as we discussed, through Scripture, Jesus demonstrates a way for us to overcome the temptation in our lives. His method is simple, but it won't always be easy. In order to put it into practice, we need to remember what Jesus did and what we can do as well. We can maintain our focus on the purpose and goal of our lives. We can occupy our minds with the Word of God, And we can press on in our faith and not give up. We're going to end with a familiar song uh, called Higher Ground. I think we are right, Dylan? Okay, good. Uh, And because we sing this song a lot, I think there's a risk that we'll just go through the motions singing the words. But don't do that this morning or ever. Uh, In a lot of ways, this song relates to Jesus' example. But I don't want us to gloss over the words we're about to sing. The opening line says... Um, I'm pressing on the upward way. And it just reminds us about pressing on, which is something we just discussed. The second verse says, My heart has no desire to stay where doubts arise and fears dismay. And this encourages us to move past the trepidation and fear in our lives and choose trust in God instead. The third verse said, I want to live above the world. 
This reminds us to choose our reward in heaven over the riches of this life. And the fourth, the fourth verse exclaims, I want to scale the utmost heights and catch a gleam of glory bright. And it, and it shows us that we need to keep our eyes and our focus on the things above this world. But most of all, when we realize how we often do a bad job at all of these things, this song is a cry to the Lord for help because we know that we cannot do it on our own. The words of the chorus are just so powerful. Lord, lift me up and let me stand. And then, Lord, lead me on to higher ground. As always, I want to let you know that Alicia and I are here for all of you. Um, and if anybody wants to talk or uh, pray about any of uh, this stuff or anything else for that matter, just please feel free to come find me after we're finished here today. Thank you for your time.